Good morning again. Oh, we can we can do better. Good morning. I it's it's not it's just that I need that I need to be uh, woken up as that uh, the the first song that we sang about um, wake up oh you rise up oh you sleeper awake. I'm like I know it's a spiritual metaphor, but also <laughs> sometimes we can take things literally. We have been in the book of Hebrews for a couple of weeks, um, and uh, we're, we're at the end of chapter 12 this morning. And just to refresh us with where we've been, uh, the book of Hebrews was written to some early Christians who were coming out of the Jewish tradition um, and wrestling with how to uh, live out and how to understand this new faith uh, and the difference that Christ made for them. And the author uh, is writing, encouraging them in every way possible that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the old system. Jesus is better than the old sacrificial system. Jesus is better than any, anything else that we could pursue. Jesus is better. And so we're going to read uh, from the end of chapter 12, starting in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So just to summarize, you have not come to that mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning? We come from all kinds of different weeks, God, and we come here... Uh, with all kinds of different motivations, but our, our prayer, our hope, our longing is that you would speak to each one here. That we would hear you call us beloved. And that we would grow as individuals and as a community more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his strong name. Amen. 
uh, I think some of you have had some experience with Alpha. Just out of curiosity, anybody done the Alpha course? It's kind of an introduction to the basics of the Christian faith uh, in the whole the whole way that the course is put together is that you watch a video, usually over dinner, and then uh, on the video they present one part of the Christian faith. Like, what do we believe about the Bible? Or what is prayer exactly? And then you just talk about it. It's like, well, what do you think? What, what, do, what do you think about that? And uh, a church that I was a part of uh, a long time ago was doing Alpha, and there was this, this woman who was part of a group, and she was just coming to start to believe in Jesus. And one of the first steps for her uh, after the, the evening where they taught about prayer was just trying out prayer, right? Just try it. You've never prayed before in your life. Why don't you just try prayer? And she did, and she was in need of a new job. Uh, and so she prayed and experienced the joy of answered prayer when she got an offer for a new job. So the next week, back at Alpha class, she shows up with a couple bottles of champagne. Because this is what you do when you celebrate answered prayer. You see, I mean, you celebrate it, right? She didn't know that the church like, had this policy, which was a terrible policy about no alcohol. But um, I was, it was great that she didn't know about it because there was this genuine, joyful reaction this celebration, right? This party of God has answered my prayer. Um, and I, that image has stuck with me. I mean, part, partly because I, I, it's like one shaken bottle away from like a World Series win, right? You know, where it's plastic over the whole locker room and everybody's wearing ski goggles because uh, champagne apparently stings the eyes when you're spraying it over everybody. But uh, this image of, of her celebrating with champagne, uh, an answered prayer, stuck with me because I think, one, of just the, the exuberance of it is so good uh, and so it, I, it draws me in. I, I want to celebrate answered prayer like that. I also think it's profoundly biblical. Uh, in the passage that we read, uh, when the author here is describing this second mountain that we've come to, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but... Uh, one of the phrases is that we have come to this joyful assembly. And the word here in the Greek refers to a party. Uh, it, it, it sometimes was used when uh, the Greeks were talking about what it was to gather around the Olympic events. Right? This, this sense of just exuberant passion, celebration. This is the flavor of the kingdom of God that you and I are invited to and in fact are a part of right now. And so... Champagne celebrations need to be more apart. Well, or whatever. It doesn't have to be champagne. But that I, kind of celebration, I think, is meant to, to mark something of our lives, something of, of what it is for us to be the church. Um, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So hang on to that image. The, the author, again, throughout the whole book, but in particular in, in this section that we read, is really trying to draw a contrast. And you, you probably picked this up, right? This sharp contrast between this old way of relating to God, the old covenant, and this new way of relating to God in Christ, the new covenant. And trying to show how in every way this new covenant is better, is far superior. So the description of the old covenant is pretty um, fearful, right? It's, pre it's pretty dark. And uh, what the author's done is taken, taken the readers back to Exodus 19 and 20, where Israel is, they've left Egypt, they've left slavery in Egypt, and they're on their way in their journey through the desert to the promised land, to freedom. And they come up to Mount Sinai, 
And uh, Moses is instructed to go up to the mountain, and he is going to meet with God and to receive instructions from God. And they're going to establish there at the mountain a new covenant, a new relationship, a way of where God will be their God, where he will provide them with guidelines that are good and intended for their flourishing. And they will commit to follow those guidelines, to those, those laws. And they will be God's people. And, uh, but around this is this clear sense of God's holiness. And so people are very clearly instructed that they are not to come to the mountain. They are to stay far away because they're sinful. And their sinfulness cannot mix with God's holiness. There's a, there's a gap here. There's a separation that needs to take place for God to be holy, recognizing the people's sin. Right? So there's this part about not even animals are supposed to come to the mountain. And if they do, um, they'll, be, they'll be stoned. They'll be struck dead. And initially, the people respond, and they say, yes, this, these, these laws are good. We will be your people. We will follow these laws. Um, and then as, uh, as Moses spends more time on the mountain, he's given the Ten Commandments. He's given a lot of, uh, of regulations and, and laws about how, just how it is that they're going to be God's people. Uh, the people get a little antsy. Uh, they get a little, little distracted, maybe a little bored. And they want something that they can worship uh, tangibly. They want something that they can have a little more control over other than this wild and holy God. And so if you're familiar with the story, right, they melt down their jewelry, they make a golden calf, and they worship that. And that's what Moses walks back into after he comes down off the mountain. That whole scene is what the author of Hebrews is trying to draw the readers into here. Do you remember this? Do you remember what your ancestors, how they, what their relationship with God looked like? It was either some form of just fear and fear of judgment, or it was total idolatry and complete, uh, completely ignoring God and pursuing this golden calf, these, this idol that you thought you could control. This is, this is the first mountain. And remember, uh, the, the author prefaces this by saying, you did not come to this mountain. <laughs> this, is what you have, this is not what you've been invited into. This is not uh, the kingdom of God that you are a part of even now. But instead, then the author goes on to describe this new mountain, uh, Mount Zion, which is also a city, the New Jerusalem, which is also a party full of angels, in which you are a family full of firstborn siblings. And God is a judge bringing about perfect justice in this party, which is also a city on Mount Zion. And there's others who are there, those that have gone before, the, the, the saints who have been made perfect. They're present there too. And finally, Jesus is here, who has made you perfect through his sprinkled blood through his sacrifice. It's a, it's a whole mixed bag of metaphors. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, one right after the other. And I think part of the power of this description is just the accumulated imagery, right? Just from one image right into the next. All of them uh, describing the abundant goodness, the richness of this kingdom of God that we have been invited to. Right, so Mount Zion and, and this New Jerusalem are often kind of uh, images and metaphors put together, and they, 
really the, the primary thing that they're trying to communicate there is, is that this is where God dwells with his people. God and his people dwell together here. Not separated because of sin and the holiness of God, but, but dwelling together. There's this festal throng of angels, this joyful celebration. Right? I've already talked a little bit about that. This is a, this is a party. That's the, that's the feeling one gets coming to this mountain, coming to partake in this kingdom. Um, it's a, one of the ways that the relationships, for those of us who, uh, for those of us who have come to this, uh, to this mountain, one of the ways that we understand our relationships is that we are a family of firstborn siblings, right? We all have all of the rights and privileges of the inheritance that's promised us. Uh, no one comes to this family without something to contribute, and no one comes without access to all of the resources of this family. This is, this, is, this is part of the description of what the church is supposed to be like, right? A family. And finally, uh, the author says, you've come to Jesus, right? It all, all of this builds up. It builds and builds and builds until finally Jesus is the one that you have come to. Jesus is the one, through his sacrifice, that makes all of this possible. And of course, the, the point that the author is making is to draw this really sharp contrast, it's, which is effectively done here, between this old way of relating to God and this new way in Christ. And I think that the intended impact of this, uh, and we actually we can see this throughout the whole book of Hebrews, the intended impact of this is for movement, for uh, some sort of progress to take place in the lives of those who are receiving this letter. Uh, the, the author talks about the life of faith as a race, right? With a starting point and an ending point and a, and a race throughout life to get there. Not necessarily because we're trying to beat each other to the finish line, but because there is a progress. There's movement in this life of faith. Uh, the author also talks earlier in the, in the book about uh, this, these longings that these great heroes of the faith had had, that it was their longings that kind of pulled them through life. They're longing for this better city. They're longing for the future that God is creating. So I think that this, this contrast between this old, and, uh, old mountain and new mountain is meant to uh, draw people into movement, into growth, into spiritual maturity, to leave something behind, to move towards something that's better. And, you know, I think for those of us who are not, um, didn't grow up within the Jewish religious system, I think sometimes it's, we struggle a little bit to understand uh, kind of the weight, maybe, of, of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do here. But um, I do think that all of us, in one way or another, are moving and growing and progressing from a, a, a faith that uh, too easily becomes about works and rules and religiosity towards a faith in Christ which is marked by grace and marked by celebration and joy. And each one of us probably has one or two or many things that our work is to leave behind uh, this understanding of, of how it is that we relate to God. That, um, you know, maybe we would say, oh, I don't believe in karma, right? I, but, but functionally, we kind of live that way, <laughs> uh, right? We, we, and so the movement for us is to understand grace, understand undeserved favor as the hallmark of this kingdom.
or maybe uh, in kind of recalling the, the idolatry and the golden calf that uh, the Jewish people created. Maybe for us the movement is away from um, seeking to build a life that we can control, uh, worshiping small things, worshiping created things, uh, things that, that God intended to give us as good gifts, but we make them the ultimate thing, whether that's the pursuit of pleasure or uh, the pursuit of, um, at all costs, uh, financial stability. And, and we, um, we make these things our God. We make these things our golden calf. And the movement for us is to continue to let those things go and to pursue the better thing, the only thing that can give us deep, real pleasure and deep, real security, which is Jesus. So this invitation is to come to Jesus. That's the invitation. Come to Jesus. To leave behind, uh, to leave behind this fear, this way of approaching God that is primarily based in fear or shame, the sense that uh, our, our sin is too great and is the, is the most defining thing about us. To leave behind the pursuit of lesser gods, pleasure, security, whatever it might be. And to pursue Jesus, whose blood frees us from the shame and the guilt that we feel over our sin. And who alone can provide us with those things that we long for. I was trying to reflect on, you know, what, what is it, what are those things that keep us, that hinder us from coming to Jesus? Uh, I think some of them I've already mentioned. Maybe it's that sense of shame that we feel, or um, maybe it's uh, that we're distracted, we're pursuing other, other gods. I, uh, I, was, I was thinking about uh, the different ways that we, um, gosh, well, I was listening to a podcast uh, and it was talking about the, the different ways that we, uh, I think the phrase they used was narcotize, like different, we each have our own different narcotics that we pursue, basically, right? For some people, maybe that's actual narcotics. Uh, for others, it's perhaps um, other things that seek to numb and dull that ache inside of us, seek to distract us from real pain and real joy. And I, I was pondering that perhaps the narcotic of our age, um, boy, this is, I'm a, this is not to downplay the, like, real, the real challenge that people face with, um, with actual narcotics. I don't want to downplay that. But uh, I think for many of us, it's busyness. It's, it's the fullness of a schedule and a life that allows us no room to experience uh, longing, no room to... Um, to pay attention to what Jesus is doing. Uh, I've been talking to a number of folks about you know, how, how your summer was, right? And uh, we had a, we've had a lovely summer, but it has been full. And we've been trying to really cut down on what we're doing these last couple of weeks so that there's at least a few weeks where we're just at home <laughs> and, uh, and, and kind of slowed down a little bit before, before school starts. Um, and at the same time, Summer and I are pretty excited for school to start. <laughs> We're pretty excited for the, the fall routine to kick in. And I think some of that is a recognition that this is, this is an opportunity to reestablish some healthier uh, rhythms to our life, some, some boundaries, some, some life-giving practices and rituals, things that, um, 
if left, if, if we weren't intentional about, life would simply fill that space, right? That uh, there's that sense of, uh, you know, things will, a gas will fill the space that it is in, and our calendars seem to function that way too. And so if we don't take some intentionality to carve out space and time to make our calendars, our schedules, uh, reflective of our priorities. So I wonder if that's, if that's not an invitation for us here at the end of August, facing the beginning of another school year, whether you're in school or not. I feel like we all kind of operate on that school calendar. Um, what, what might creating some space in your life to come to Jesus, to pursue him, what, what might that look like this fall? I am a, I'm a big believer that the church exists for the sake of the world, that we don't just exist for ourselves. Uh, in fact, we've, we've made, we spent some time as a council over the last few years trying to re-articulate what it is that we think we're about. And essentially what we've, what we've done is we've re-articulated the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And, and how we phrase that is we want to be a church that's rooted in Christ for the flourishing of our neighbors rooted in Christ for the flourishing of our neighbors. Um, I believe that one of the most profound ways that we can help our neighbors flourish is to be the kind of community that reflects this vision of this second mountain, that reflects the joy and the celebration and the grace and the, the common family, all of us on the same plane, that vision of our relationships. If we can do that, if we can be the kind of church that reflects that, then I think that Jesus' words in John 13 make a lot more sense when he says, the world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Right? This, is, this is one of the ways, one of the primary ways, I think, where we can seek the flourishing of our neighbors is by being this kind of community that the author of Hebrews describes here this joyful, celebratory community, this community that really does bear each other's burdens, where we really are a family, where we reflect the grace of Christ in our relationships, and then we invite the world into that. Because I, I know that they're hungry for that. I'm hungry for that. So I think this, this image of, uh, of what this second mountain, what the church, what the kingdom of God can look like has profound implications for our neighbors as we invite them to taste and see what this is like, how good God is in the midst of this community. The final thing I want to say uh, is, is this. The, the tense that the author uses in, in the Greek here is this unique one that is a present tense that has ongoing implications. You have come to this mountain. You have come to this family, to this party. You have come to Jesus. It is now. This is not something that's going to happen in the future. This is something that we are able to participate in even now and will have ongoing implications for the rest of our lives. So what does, uh, what does movement towards Christ look like for you? as we look towards the fall beginning, as we look towards new rhythms of life establishing, 
And how might we as a community reflect this image of this second mountain, this kingdom of God, this church rooted in Christ? I think if we can sit with these questions, if we can let the Spirit work and and speak to us and nudge us and hint us in directions uh, that our lives start to look a little more like this, I think the world around us is going to notice that. They're going to see that, and it's going to scratch an itch that maybe they've been aware of, maybe they didn't even know they had it. It's going to pique their curiosity. And I think ultimately is going to draw them in so that they too can respond to Jesus' invitation to come to him.